to the extent that the dimensions on which human behavior can be so vastly different, yes, in theory, we could have standardization, but in practice, that's pretty hard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Strzok, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is Dilip Soman, Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Science and Economics and Director at BEAR, the Behavioral Economics and Action Group at the Rotman School of Business, University of Toronto. In today's episode, we'll be talking about moving from knowledge to action, how to translate nudges into the field, how to scale them up, and pitfalls to watch out for along the way. Dilip, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brooke. And it's a lovely topic, something that I'm uh, very passionate about studying. So it's lovely to be here. What challenges are you seeing in the way that people are trying to design behavioral intervention? What's keeping you up at night that's got you working on this topic? I'm not sure it's keeping me up at night, but I think the challenge for our field has been the fact that we were a growth field and now we're at maturity. So I think we've gone to a point where people know that behavioral interventions work. We know behavioral science is important. We know know that it's really important to understand the science of nudging. But now we're at a point where we need to scale it up and we're at a point at which we need to standardize processes. And I think any field that goes through those growing pains will know exactly what that entails. So for example, in all of our previous history as a field, let's say the past 14 or 15 years, we focused on successes. We focused on things that worked. Our journals are full of examples of interventions that worked. We haven't paid as much attention to things that didn't work and why they didn't work and when they didn't work. And I think that's the kind of stuff that we need to start thinking through now. The idea that just because an intervention worked for Brooke, let's say you and your group in Montreal, doesn't mean it's going to replicate for me and mine next week in Toronto. So I think that's our next challenge. In a previous conversation, you used an analogy that I absolutely loved. People wanting to use behavioral insights in practice assume that they can just walk down to their local nudge store, pick something up off the shelf, and expect it to work out there in the wild. Now, that analogy is really compelling. But when we think about things that way, and when we behave that way in our practice, often what we find is that the nudges don't work, or they're not as effective necessarily as they had been demonstrated to be previously in other contexts. What's going wrong there? It's a fabulous question because I think it gets to the heart of what makes behavioral science different to a practitioner than most other sciences. And let me illustrate that with another example before we get to the nut store. So suppose I lift an object and I hold it up and I say, what's going to happen if I release that object? It is perhaps uncontroversial for most people to say that the object will fall to the next possible surface, the floor perhaps. It doesn't matter who holds up the object. It doesn't matter which country we're in, what language we speak. The object is going to fall to the floor. And that's because the brackets of the context in which that particular theory, the theory of gravity holds true, is pretty large, or maybe the phenomena of an object falling to the ground. Now, if I took that same object to the moon or some other celestial body and I released it, it probably isn't going to fall to the ground immediately. Every theory has its, in psychology, I guess we call them moderators, situations under which the theory is uh, results in a particular outcome and situations in which it doesn't. And it's just that in most other theories that those brackets of outcome spaces are really, really large. So think about physics, think about engineering, think about microbiology. If I'm actually using some of those sciences where effects are pretty robust, on planet Earth, then the way I think about science is very different. Then I can actually do a meta-analysis. I can figure out what the generalizable insights are. What are the most common phenomena? And if they have been demonstrated by a lab in Germany or South Africa, they're going to work here because uh, nothing in the context that is relevant to that phenomena has changed. Now, 
behavioral science is different from the work of Richard Taylor and in fact, everybody else. There are little things in the environment that we think shouldn't matter. This could be all kinds of things. That could be time of the day. It could be whether you're inside or outside a store. Taylor called them supposedly irrelevant factors. And so all of our phenomena are predicated under a set of those supposedly irrelevant factors. What that ends up creating is the belief that something I read about in the paper easily replicable. Why? Because no paper is going to go in and document every single aspect of the context. And so the nut store idea is kind of like saying, okay, let me do a meta-analysis. Let me see what the most common success stories are. And I'm just going to take, the, take them off the shelf, bring it to my lab or bring it to my field and implement them. And it doesn't work because uh, for lots of good reasons, your supposedly irrelevant factors are going to be different. And I can share lots of examples of that. Actually, if you have an example off the top of your head, that'd be great. Several years ago, I and many other people had done research on credit card spending. That's the idea that everything else held constant if you pay using a credit card compared to other forms of payment. And keep in mind, this was the 1990s. So credit cards were like the state of the art payment technology back then. Anything else included things like cash or check or barter, I suppose. But then you tended to spend more. Again, holding everything else constant. In the lab, we do it by making sure people had access to other to liquidity. So that wasn't an issue. It's just that the quote-unquote store in the lab only accepted either a check or a credit card. And many people have shown that. And now it turns out the question is, why does that happen? There was an elaborate theory for why it happened. The idea being that certain payment mechanisms leave a weaker trace in your memory. So when I'm faced with a new purchase opportunity, the question that I ask myself is, well, gee, how much have I spent in the recent past on things like this? And if the answer is I've spent a lot, then I'm less likely to make a new purchase. If the answer is that I haven't spent as much, then I'm okay making the purchase. And if I'm paying by credit card, I just don't remember those possibilities. So that was a story there. And obviously, there were many other theoretical explanations, but that's the key explanation in some of my work. And so I said to myself in the lab, how do I reduce this effect? And the answer was simple. It was simply to give people feedback on how much they had spent. So imagine a world in which you've got a mobile wallet and every time you tap, to make a payment, it just pauses and shows you a list of your last 15, 20 expenses, right? It seemed like something that could have been done easily. And so we get results, right? So by giving people feedback, it works beautifully. Other people have tested this in a field setting. We've done it in the lab. And so there's a fairly robust set of effects there. Now, it turns out in 2010 or so, the government in South Korea decided to change policy. And the primary reason for this policy was to prevent fraud. But they wanted to send such reminders to people that had just made a credit card transaction, right? Now, obviously, like, this is common nowadays in many parts of the world. Back then, it was fairly revolutionary. And in their policy documents, they said, well, yes, we want to prevent fraud, but we think this will help people be more prudent because they now have feedback on every single expense that they made. So we looked at the data and surprise, surprise, we actually found the opposite effect. That on an average, people who had opted in to receive these notifications spent more instead of less, right? And so, of course, we found that interesting. We combed that data a little bit more, found out that there were two groups. There was actually heavy spenders, people that had large credit card bills for whom the text message actually worked in reducing their spending. But for the vast majority, 85% or so, it increased spending. Now, why did that happen? Important difference in terms of how the message was delivered in the lab or in the previous field experiment versus here. In the previous experiments, the reminder came in on the same interface that you were making a payment. So you swipe the card on that 
kiosk or the screen, it said, this is your past expense. Same thing in the lab. Whereas here, it came to a separate device. It was sent through with a text message. At some point in time, you think, well, okay, so what's the difference? Well, the difference is you don't have to look at your phone when you're making a purchase. So it wasn't salient. But it actually also created a secondary effect, which is in a lot of research on consumer psychology in the use of technology, we call it a digital dependency. And so when we interviewed people, they would say things, oh, if I ever needed a record, I know my phone has it. Instead of being more vigilant with their spending, which is what the reminder was supposed to do, they actually outsourced all of that to the phone. And so they were actually more disengaged than they were previously, right? So little difference in hindsight in terms of how that message was delivered, supposedly relevant, massively relevant. And so that's like one example that jumps out, but there's a lot of others. Yeah, that's great. And uh, these supposedly irrelevant factors, I think as your example so nicely illustrates, are ones that will often surprise us. We don't yes. know where to look for them mm -hmm. before they crop up and kind of smack us in the face. That's correct. And I think uh, Richard Taylor and others have written about the fact that a lot of these things make sense exposed after it's happened. And this was true for us too. When we found the effect had backfired, we can explain it exposed. But perhaps if we were there at the time of designing the intervention, maybe it would have escaped us too. Like we wouldn't even have thought mm -hmm. of this, right? And so that's a really important point. These things creep up on you. I want to go back to one of the points you were talking about earlier around these brackets or these conditions under which effects will be robust. The model of knowledge creation in modern Western science, which is also the epistemological model that's embedded in a lot of our industrial systems, is all about consistency and standardization. We standardize a thing so that we know that it's always going to behave exactly the same way, and then we can predict it, mm -hmm. we can model it, all these things. It's really primarily about control, but this philosophy you know, really clashes with a situation where what we're trying to control is, is human behavior because there are so many of these non-standardizable features that we don't even know to look for before they crop up. So what are the tensions that this difference creates in terms of both knowledge creation, but also trying to mobilize knowledge in the field and actually create interventions that work? Yeah, so I think there's a lot in that question. So let's try and unpack that a little bit. And I think I resonate with your comment about the push for standardization. I'm an engineer by training. That was my first degree. And so I know exactly what you mean. And I do think in theory, if we had what I'm going to call a grand unified theory of human decision making, which we do not, it would still be possible to standardize stuff. We could still say under a certain set of conditions that involve 500 variables, this is a standard intervention, right? It's just going to be too complicated and too clunky for it to be useful. I think to the extent that the dimensions on which human behavior can be so vastly different. Yes, in theory, we could have standardization, but in practice, that's pretty hard. What does that mean for knowledge creation? I actually am not convinced that knowledge creation in itself is a problem, but translation is. So for example, if I look at the incentive structures for most academics, I'm not incentivized to say, look, I found that this intervention works, but only if the following 500 conditions are met. I'm incentivized to say changing defaults is a boon to save the world from all kinds of social problems. That doesn't mean you actually say that. But oftentimes people read it that way. One of the questions that we're grappling with is uh, if we can create interventions to help a practitioner understand that these sets of features are responsible for the effect that was found, could that perhaps push them to be a bit more cautious in terms of just going to the nut store and picking th things up off the shelf? So I think it's really the practice where it imposes a challenge. I think in theory, like I say, if we did have a grand unified theory, then we could be precise and useful, but we don't. And so we can either be precise or we can be useful. And I think what we see in certain parts of the academic literature is a lot of precision, but 
again, we don't know under what conditions. There's simply too many. And so as a practitioner, it doesn't help me. Or we can be less theoretical, less precise with the theory, but more practical by giving people pragmatic advice. And that's been my focus and the focus of our work in a partnership that we call the Behaviorally Informed Organizations Partnership. We're saying, look, theory is great. It's going to help you come up with a bunch of starting hypotheses. It's going to help you with a first draft of your intervention. But unless it is tested in the context in which it's actually going to be deployed, uh, that's going to be a problem. The tension between precision and utility in the field, I think, is best resolved by creating that discipline of testing. We can be precise about the process if not about the outcome. Testing is kind of the solution to this problem of trying to figure out, are there additional challenges in my practice ecosystem that I hadn't anticipated just based on what's out there in the literature? To go back to our nudge store example, I take something off the shelf and I go and use it, but I don't use it blindly. I don't go in assuming it's just going to work. What I'm taking off the shelf is a hypothesis. The better the knowledge creation is, the stronger the hypotheses are that you're going to be pulling off the shelf. And when I say a stronger hypothesis, I mean one that has a higher likelihood of being true. Correct. I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I I do think there are a couple more challenges as we sort of start diving into this whole issue of trying to see how knowledge can be best applied in the field. I think one of the other big challenges is, again, back to the incentive structure of academics and practitioners. Let's say I'm the academic. I'm interested in a particular phenomena, a particular theory. Might have made a career out of studying mental accounting or the pain of payment or whatever else. You might not care about that. You simply want to get people to purchase things or to not purchase things or to save for the future, right? And so you are seeing the entire collection of academic work as a toolkit, as a portfolio from which you're looking to choose tools, whereas I'm only providing one of those tools. In engineering, we have a very clear-cut way of thinking through what's the right tool for what situation. In the behavioral sciences, we don't. So let's imagine I'm trying to encourage people to save more for retirement. This is a project that we're working on in Mexico in partnership with Ideas42, as well as the government agency there. If I look at the literature, you know, they'd say, well, you can change the framing of the message instead of telling people how much they will gain in the future. You can tell them how much they would lose if they did not contribute. You could introduce implementation intention prompts. You could think about sort of just increasing closeness with your future self. There's all of these things that have been demonstrated in the literature. Is there any research which tells me which of these three things is the best thing to do? The answer is no, right? And the answer is no, because nobody has an incentive to do it. Practitioners are too busy solving problems. Academics are too busy in their particular silos. I think we need a lot more of that research because otherwise, how is a practitioner going to figure out what the right tool to use is? So again, in that world, I think some preliminary testing helps. And then the question is like, what does it actually mean to test? What does it mean to take an idea, develop a starting hypothesis, and then roll it out uh, into the field as a test? I like to think about it as a ladder of evidence kind of an idea. I and mean, I don't think uh, everybody should start off by doing a massive randomized control trial. That would just be a mistake. But, you know, start off with the survey. Start off with sort of simple lab experiments where you can see what people's hypothetical reaction to an intervention might be. Then think about a design session. Then think about sort of a more complicated experiment, then think about a trial. And so I think as we move through this ladder of evidence, we can start off with a wide collection of options that we want to test, narrow them down successively until you're left with a few manageable ones to do in a randomized trial. So I think that's where our efforts should be, how to fine tune that process to help people make sense of the knowledge. 
I like that concept of a ladder of evidence very much. It's something that here at the Decision Lab, I think we put into practice that we've never had kind of a name for the concept mm. that fits so nicely as that. One of the things that we found, though, is this kind of ladder of evidence approach is really disjointed from the experiences that a lot of people have coming out of academia. You mentioned the initial reflex is to run a massive randomized control trial. Where is it that we learn? Where is it that we train people in the field to actually develop their skills and also their reflexes to reach for different rungs on that ra ladder rather than always going to the top rung and assuming yeah. that an RCT is the first thing. I think the challenge with the PhD training is, of course, you teach people at the top rung. The assumption that they know how to get there, that assumption might not always be true. And I think the reason it might not always be true is that the simple geography of the place where you get your PhD or the kind of people that you're working with in your PhD formative years shapes the part of the world that you think is representative of the whole world, right? So we have this projection bias. We think like the whole world looks a lot more like ours than it actually does. And so I think really pushing and inculcating the discipline of listening and talking and observing is something we haven't done a good job of, not just in academic programs, but also in the field. I think a lot of people go in, we call it solution-mindedness, like they have a pet intervention that they know they want to work. And so it's really, you know, sort of do a motivated sort of search of the environment, right? We've tried really hard to develop tools to do a simple audit. And, you know, you guys do the same thing too. Let's look at the emotions that people go through. Let's look at the cognitions. Let's understand the motivations. Let's look at the perceptions. Are people looking at the problem the same way as you're looking at it, right? So I remember many years back when I was doing research on savings in the global south, I remember going to Thailand, talking to a jute farmer who had absolutely nothing saved up in the bank. And my colleague at that point in time asked him whether he was worried about the fact that he had nothing saved up. He was 70 years old. And he looked back and said, well, you know, I have four sons. Why would I be worried? That moment was enlightening for me because I think it was the fact that we had always assumed that the universal analysis is an individual. Same thing with indigenous populations in Canada. We think about us as individuals, but most indigenous people operate in communities. It's the community that's the universal analysis. Look at our bank accounts. These are individual bank accounts. Look at our retirement products. They're individual products. Our identities are individual. All of our documentation, our official systems are all based on individual as a unit of analysis. And I think unless we change that, we will always fall into this trap of thinking that everybody else operates the same way as we do. So I think it's really important to build that discipline, uh, develop these frameworks, giving people a checklist of what to observe. Is it the same unit of analysis? Are the socioeconomic structures different? Are the institutions different? Is the family structure different? Is the sort of, you know, governmental support different, right? So one of my other pet areas of interest is uh, welfare programs, things like cash transfer programs. And a lot of people assume that uh, why would the government not be able to transfer money to low-income populations? Everybody has a driver's license and everybody has an address, right? Guess what? In many parts of the world, they don't. And so you go to the favelas in Latin America, the slums in, uh, in South Asia, people do not have addresses, do not have phone numbers, they do not have bank accounts. And so so we start with those kind of challenges. So always as a global North researcher, it is tempting to impose our worldview. But I think we need to do a much better job of pushing people to study those bottom rungs of the ladder. Let's dig into that a little bit. In our approach to research in the behavioral sciences, we tend to focus a lot on averages. So the way that we actually do statistical analysis is focused on often the mean difference that you're able to achieve with right. one intervention as opposed to another. But what you're talking about here is not just random noise in the distribution. What you're talking about is systematic deviations from the means. So Absolutely. what happens to outliers when we have these circumstances where we're trying to establish whether a nudge works 
And the population that we're testing it out on is actually very heterogeneous in ways that we might not anticipate until we've already figured out that something's broken and it doesn't work. So I think there are two aspects to what you said. I think one is the fact that as researchers, our dependent measures of interest are usually averages. But in fact, we should be looking at the distributions, right? We don't do that. I can think of many examples where interventions change the distribution, but not the average. And it's tempting to say, oh, the intervention didn't work. So I'm going to give you a completely different example from a different domain. This is not a behavioral intervention in the classic sense. But several years ago, I was sitting in my office minding my own business when a reporter called and said, you know, I saw this real estate agent doing a listing in which they have listed a house in a very upscale part of Toronto at a dollar, one dollar. Why do you think they did that? And and so, of course, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's not go into it. The one thing that I did do, I ran a a few sort of simple survey-based experiments. And I think in hindsight, this makes perfect sense. The idea that when you give people a listing price and they're looking at the property, they're going to say, okay, they asked for a million and a half. Is it worth that much to me? Or is it worth more or less? And if more, how much more, right? So we're anchoring at the at the listing and then we're going about. If we don't have an anchor, then it turns out we are not doing that. We are actually building our valuation from first principles. And long story short, based on some of the studies that I did, and again, these are not very clean, so not in a journal uh, at this point in time, but it's actually the averages with and without don't change, but the distribution does. In the $1 case, you get some really high bids and some really low ones. In the case of the listing price, you get distributions that are relatively tight around what the asking price was. Here's a world in which the seller doesn't really care about the average. They just have like the one house to sell. All they care about is the top end of the distribution. Bring this up is that perhaps... If I'm a business, I'm a marketer, and my goal is to focus on only the top end of the distribution, we need to think about what the distribution is. If I'm a government and I want to focus on the lower end of the distribution, I want to make sure I leave no one else behind, we need to focus on the distribution. So I think that's one element that we usually miss in our research. We report height of bars. And that's pretty much it, right? Now, to your point about heterogeneity, like to me, that's a massively important point. Back to another field project, you know, along the lines of the one I mentioned earlier in Mexico, we did an intervention where, like I said, we were trying to get people to make voluntary contributions to their pensions, Uh, text messaging interventions. We came up with all kinds of different interventions. The one that worked the best was a family appeal. In most sort of Western societies, the oldest quote-unquote trick in the book is to ask people to appeal to their own future self. Uh, It turns out in Mexico, that didn't work. It didn't work because appealing to your own future self was seen as selfish. It's seen as taking away money from your existing family. And so we played around, we changed the messaging. It was now about the family's future. That worked. And then we said, well, obviously it's not going to work for everyone, right? Like if I don't have a family, this shouldn't work. And so our first impulse was to see if we could somehow look at the data and run this intervention separately for people with and without families and people in urban versus rural and whatever else. Right? And, and if I was going to do that as a behavioral scientist, I would look at the three or four things that I think mattered. I would run a giant two by two by two by two or whatever that experiment is. And that's not going to be efficient. Plus, when it comes to certain things like age of marriage, right? Like, I don't know when people get married. So uh, census data gives me age up to 25 and 25 to 37. So is that the right distribution or not? We don't know. So we ended up using machine learning. And the technique we used was causal forest and causal trees, which is really a recursive clustering algorithm, where we then found that roughly at the age of 28, anyone under the age of 28, the intervention didn't work. Anyone above the age of 28, it did work. 
post, it made sense. That was the average marriage age at that point in time. We were able to do this by gender. Uh, women got married at a younger age in that particular uh, society. So these are the kinds of things we can now do. And we can say, here's the group to which this intervention works the best. Here's another group to which a different intervention works the best. We can customize. We need to do a lot of that. I mean, I think understanding and harnessing heterogeneity is sort of the next big thing. Uh, my colleague Tanjim Hussein and I wrote a commentary in a journal where we basically the title of the commentary is uh, successfully scaled innovations need not be homogeneous. In fact, they should be heterogeneous, right? And, uh, and so you're absolutely right. That's something we need to think a lot more deeply about. The one thing I will say is that with the advent of these clustering algorithms, the ones like machine learning offers us, there is a lot more we can now do. And I think we need to actively use those in our research. Let's talk about the challenges to doing that kind of work. So you mentioned that these algorithms are becoming more and more available and the skills to build them and, and to work with them are becoming more and more widespread as well. But there are still some pretty important barriers to this kind of experimentation. One came up kind of between the lines in the story that you were mentioning, which is access to data itself is obviously such a crucial starting point for any of the kinds of research approaches that you're talking about here. But there are costs to experimentation that, that are creating barriers as well. And I have in mind in costs, both monetary cost, but also organizational cost. Like it's a yes. big psychological change to go out with hypotheses and say, we don't know which of these is true. And our purpose is to go and figure it out, as right. opposed to saying, I already know what the answer is, and I'm going to run a pilot test that's just going to validate it before mm -hmm. we scale it up. So can you talk to me a little bit or talk to us a little bit about the costs of experimentation? Yeah, I mean, Brooke, you've probably been in meetings that go on and on and on in the marketing world where people are saying, okay, you know, should I cut the price for a product or should I offer some other kind of promotion? And then there's debates and discussions and case studies being pulled out. And I sit back and say, why don't we just test them out? You're right. I think what prevents us from testing is obviously a combination of both the testing infrastructure. So a lot of companies don't have it. I mean, some of the bigger ones don't have it, but also the non-testing aspects, fear of failure, lack of humility. That's a big one, right? Like kind of what if I test this and I find out that everything I've been doing for the past 20 years was not the most optimal thing? It holds back a lot of people. Like they have this, you know, if it isn't broken, why test it attitude? Well, maybe it would have been broken if you knew what the best outcome was. We like to think about this construct of the cost of experimentation more generally. It's kind of interesting that in talking about how to best embed behavioral science or behavioral econ, we go back to economics 101, right? Law of demand and supply. If something becomes cheap, the demand for the thing goes up. The demand for its complements goes up. The demand for its substitutes goes down. We know this. We've known this for a long, long, long time. It works with price of coffee and the consumption of cream and sugar and so on and so forth. I think it's the same story with experimentation. If experimentation is cheap, we're going to see more of it. What makes experimentation cheap? Well, let's start with sort of the obvious one, which is the access to samples, right? Google has access to its customers 24-7. Procter & Gamble doesn't, right? Or many others don't. So one is the access. The other is the ability to randomize in an experimental sense and the ability to quickly launch experiments. Again, Google has it. I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard stories where I don't think people at Google sit in strategy sessions and say, well, should I have a white background or a blue background? They just kind of test it and figure out what works best, right? So I think they have the appetite to do that. A lot of other companies don't. It's not part of the culture. They don't have platforms to test out, right? So if I'm a packaged goods manufacturer, how do I run an experiment? How, like, even if it's at the bottom of the evidence ladder. So one of the things we're doing at the partnership is to try and build some sort 
sort of digital labs or avenues for companies to collaborate and collect data there. And it's again, it's early stages, but I think just again, reducing that cost, I think is massively helpful. So those are all the data collection costs. And then that gets into quality of data and so on and so forth. I find the other stuff more interesting. There are organizational barriers. There are these issues of lack of humility. There are issues of organizations not being able to follow through if in fact they get everything right. So for example, if I have the ability to spot what's going on on a day-by-day basis, can I actually change things? And this struck me last year when I remember we had just gone into lockdown after the pandemic, I think three months had passed, and I'm still seeing ads of traveling to exotic vacation destinations. I'm like, what's going on here? And obviously it's because you buy six months worth of media and it's locked in place. If I can't change based on what I'm seeing around me, then that's kind of pointless as well. So I think it is a fairly complex thing. And I think the way we need to think about it is, to me, I think there are three legs to this whole thing. I think there's obviously the data quality, all of that stuff, ability to randomize. There is the agility, the ability to move if, in fact, I learn something new. And there is the mindset, the willingness to think about everything as an experiment. And I think we need all these three things to happen at the same time. It's your classic three-legged stool. One of them doesn't happen and it's just going to come crashing down. So it's a great uh, question, a great area of exploration, a lot of work to be done in that area. In the work that you've done, have you seen any patterns about which of those three legs of the stool tends to be the biggest barrier or the one that people encounter first? And again, hearkening back to the discussion we had about heterogeneity, maybe for different organizations is different. than So it, it is different. And I think obviously part of it is how close you are and how many degrees of separation you have from your end user is a big variable there. But I think the mindset one is the big one for many as well. I have known many companies, and we're not going to name names here, where They are next to their customer in terms of the value chain. But it's these other things, right? Things like, what if this doesn't work? Or I think the other thing that sort of trips a lot of organizations up is the worry about finding conflicting evidence. Suppose I do a pilot and I learn that blue background is better than white. And do I do a second one? And I learn that white is better than blue. What am I going to do? How do I make sense of that data? So let's just avoid all of that and not test it. So I think those to me are the bigger challenges. And I think once an organization decides that they want to do it, I think it's only a question of figuring out how to make it happen. Like I say, if you can't do a field trial, you could do experiments. You could do other kinds of studies, A-B surveys or stuff like that. So to me, it's the mindset. That's the big one. For organizations that are looking to move more in the direction that we're advocating here, what are the early steps that they can take to start making progress on that? The first thing they can do is to simply document past successes and variables and try and explain variations through these, you know, what we call SIFs, supposedly relevant factors, right? I've done this with many organizations. I remember like there was one particular case where there was a particular intervention that we were trying, worked like a dream. Then we tried it again, just stopped working. Then we tried it again, it worked like a dream. And so we were trying to sort of make sense, like what's happening to the experiment? Why is it working in in some instances and, and not others? And at that stage, I asked my team to put together and we sat down and discussed every single thing that we could about each of those interventions. When was the study run? What month of the year? And once we did that, we realized there was a pattern there. Things that were run in the summer didn't work. Things that were run in other seasons we have in Canada uh, worked, (laughs) right? 
and to cut a long story short, this was an intervention about sort of getting people to act sooner on stuff. It was intervention based on the theory that when people are busy, they use certain prompts, right? You know how busy people are in the summer. That mindset that we required end users to have for the theory to work didn't exist, right? But it was only after about a year and a half of like systematically cataloging when things happened and what was different that we realized that. And I think a lot of companies miss that. Like there's so much data sitting there. It's just kind of looking back at your databases and trying to figure out, is there an generalizable empirical pattern? Are there seasonal effects? Are there geographic effects? Are there certain kinds of distribution effects would be the first thing. And then once you have those hypotheses, right, then I think it's time to visit the nut store, not just to pull things off the shelf, but as you said, develop a bunch of hypotheses to see how we can best correct for those imbalances. So I think the answer is it's all there. But really that mindset of saying, let me look at the data and try and find patterns is key. When you mentioned cataloging the successes and failures, one of the things that came to mind was a conversation I was having yesterday, actually, about the fact that when you've got very fluid processes within an organization, you've got very heterogeneous artifacts. Essentially, you don't have data yet. You've just got a bunch of stuff. It's when you start to standardize the processes internally that things become more comparable. They become more structured. If you can put stuff into an Excel database and it's more clear, like what should the column headers be and what should Mm. the information Mm. contained in each column be, starting to structure your internal processes to be able to capture information in a way that's comparable seems to be an important ingredient there. Because if you've just got a whole bunch of heterogeneous artifacts that are not characterized along dimensions that you want to be looking at later, then that's going to be your first mountain to scale. I think we can even go one step back. I think when you train as a social scientist, like you have a very clear mental model of identifying what's the cause, what's the effect, what's the mediator, what's the moderator, right? What is it that we're changing to create what outcome change? And then when does it work and when does it not work, moderator? And through what route? Mediate. And, and I don't think we do that in our field work. Sometimes we try stuff and it has an effect, but it's not the effect that we want. But then you have to write an impact report at the end and you say, well, you know what, we always wanted to do this other thing. But I think just having that discipline of that mental model saying, what am I changing? To what effect? And under what conditions do I expect it to work? When might it not work? I think that's a useful discipline that we need to do a lot more of. I mean, we call it the behavior change challenge uh, statement, which is very clearly, what is it? Even trying to understand what behavior change you want to engineer. Right? Like, what are people doing right now, what do you want them to do? Mm-hmm. Is helpful because oftentimes, and you've probably seen this more than I have, is you get behavior change challenges that are articulated at such an abstract level that we want people to be more engaged. Well, that's great. What would they do differently if they were engaged, right? So I think that precision is missing. And I think to the extent we can develop the habit of being precise, then I think the data can then speak to that as opposed to, sort of, as you said, a lot of nebulous conversation. There's a great... Uh discursive trick that one of our previous guests from probably about a year ago now, Matt Wallert, talked about. And he encountered often the same problem that you're just describing. I want my employees to be more engaged or, you know, I want my customers to have more brand recognition or this kind of thing. And and Matt's approach there was, okay, well, suppose there are these two parallel universes, one that contains Matt and one that contains Matt Prime. Matt is completely disengaged. Matt Prime is super engaged. But in all other ways, they're exactly alike. They don't behave any differently. Do you care whether I'm Matt or Matt Prime and using this as a, a bit of a foil to push people to say, like, what is it that people would do that would be yes. observable, that would be concrete, that would actually be the thing that you care about? Yeah. So when I teach, for example, in the executive programs or in on the MBA programs, I, one of the other things I push people to do is to not just identify the behavior, but make sure it is a singular behavior. It cannot be decomposed any further. What I mean by that is, uh, for example, somebody comes in and says, I want people to spend more in my stores. I think that's observable. It's a behavior. 
here. Do you want them to spend more by buying higher quality products or just by buying more volume? And then they said, well, it doesn't matter. I said, it does. Because the psychological process to get these two outcomes is different, right? And so I think really drilling down to the basic unit of behavior change, I think is key. And I like Matt's approach. And I think that's just pushing that to make sure that it is precise, it is observable, and then we can understand what the psychological mechanism is. So we talked about organizations and what the barriers are for organizations to change. But one of the things that I always find myself needing to remind myself is that organizations don't make decisions. People Mm -hmm. make decisions in an organizational context. So if we look now at a different unit of analysis, if we look at the individual, for someone who's listening to this and says, oh my gosh, this is so badly the thing that we have needed inside Mm -hmm. my organization, what can they do to start catalyzing change? That's an interesting question because I think um, at the end of the day, I could define the what do they need to do at an abstract level, but in the spirit of what we just said, let's try and be precise, right? So (laughs) what are we really arguing for here? We are arguing for a personal decision decision-making system, which is as bias-free as possible, which brings in all the information to the table, which recognizes that other people might not interpret the information in the same way. So that's a tall order, right? And I think it's really important to kind of break that down. Uh, So there's obviously sort of the personal stuff, right? Like I know people are overconfident. Am I perhaps falling into the same trap? I know people use motivated reasoning. Am I doing the same thing, etc.? That sounds easier than it is in practice, but I think that's something that people can accomplish by giving themselves feedback over time, right? In the overconfidence research, there's a classic finding that if you compare overconfidence by professions, it turns out the least overconfident people are weather forecasters. Mind you, they may not be accurate but they're not confident about their lack of accuracy. And it's because they get feedback every single day. If I'm a physician, on the other hand, or a rocket scientist, right? Like, I don't get too much feedback. Like, if I'm a doctor, somebody comes to me with headache, I'll prescribe pills, perhaps. And then if all goes well, they never come back. There might be other reasons why they don't come back. So I just don't get any feedback. And so I think giving yourself feedback, I think, is critical. So it goes back to the discipline of actually writing down things, systemizing it. But then the process, I think that's another big one. So for example, we work with a partner where they said, in developing proposals for our internal funding for different projects, the proponents of each project is supposed to consult at least three or four other people and uh, base their, incorporate their feedback in the proposal. And we don't think people do that. So it was a simple behavior change thing. People aren't consulting others, we should. I don't know if he solved it, but he addressed that by a simple restructuring of the form. Instead of just a big block of text saying, how did you incorporate any feedback? We asked them, what are the top three things that you heard? And what's your response? Just the act of being precise about the feedback, I think increased the likelihood that people went out and got that feedback, right? So I think there's a lot of things that we can change simply by changing our internal processes or our reporting uh, processes. Just asking people why their belief in the fact that a particular intervention will work might be wrong or when might it not work is a fantastic intervention. So I think we need to do more of that within organizations. But again, it's one step at a time. I think, uh, you know, fixing yourself, I think is a great first step before we can start fixing others. I think that's such a nice note to end on. Dilip, thank you so much for this conversation, for taking your time and sharing your insights with us today. Absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening in. This was wonderful because, uh, like I say, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot these days. All right. And we hope to speak with you again soon. Fantastic. If you'd like to learn more about Applied Behavioral Insights, you can find plenty of materials on our website, thedecisionlab.com. There, you'll also be able to find our newsletter, which features the latest and greatest developments in the field, including these podcasts, as well as great public content about biases, interventions, and our project work.